Oh, sorry, page 1039. So reading from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Well, thanks, Esther, and good morning again, everyone. It's great to be continuing on Luke's Gospel today. We actually started Luke uh, back in chapter 1 in November of 2017, it seems like a world ago now, and we've done it in a few sections, and of course all of those are online if you would like to go back and listen to them. And as a church, we're going to stick with Luke now to almost the end of March, and we'll pick it up again and continue further later in the year. We will get to thinking through my opening question, and of course now having heard the Bible reading, you'll see why that makes sense, on what it means to pay a cost for following Jesus and how that applies for us today. But first I want to reorient us in Luke a bit so that we get where we are, but more importantly to show you how some appreciation of how Luke's account of Jesus' life fits together can help us get more out of what we're reading and then make a sound application to us today. I'm very keen on us as a church growing to be uh, people growing in our ability and our confidence to read the Bible well, both individually and in our community group Bible studies, but also to be good listeners of sermons. I think one of the best ways you can listen to a sermon is to have your Bible open in front of you and ask yourself, did the preacher make his point well from the text? Can I see how he got there? I actually think listening critically to sermons is a good thing. It's not something inherently negative. It simply means actively engaging in analysing the merits and faults of what you're hearing. And in the case of a sermon, I'm saying you should ask yourself, was this point well made from the Bible? I listen to lots of sermons, it's my preferred way to kind of keep input in my life. I listen to a lot in the car or when I'm uh, out and about. And sometimes you hear uh, very moving and persuasive preachers who by the time you get to the end of the sermon, you go back and look at the Bible text, you think, I found that quite moving, yet I don't feel like it's really explained the Bible particularly well or I really get where they got that point from. And then on the other end of the spectrum... I think sometimes you can hear what sounds relatively like a much plainer sermon, but I find it has much more enduring power 
if it really explained the Bible well. I think the mark of a good preacher is one that when you walk away, you can say, I can see from Scripture why that's the case. That makes sense to me now. And then I wanted to kind of own up that, for me, sometimes a little slow. I do, to be honest, have to say to myself, I reckon uh, this is a little dialogue that goes on in my head. I think, I reckon I could have read that passage five times and probably missed that. But now that it's been pointed out to me, if I just slowed down and read it more carefully or that bit of background from the Old Testament or something like that came to my mind, I can see how they got there. For me, when I find myself saying that, I think, aha, that is good preaching. Uh, the person who has that saying me uh, that more than most in recent years is someone I listen to quite a lot. You would have, uh, regulars will remember the name when I say it, a pastor from London, William Taylor. I think he's one of the best today in a very straightforward way, writing studies and things that help you get into the Bible for yourself and making his argument from Scripture. And this was supposed to be the point where I held up a little green book and said, William's got a great one out, just released on this section of Luke's Gospel, which we committed to teaching it before it came out. And when it came out, I thought, great, because <laughs> we used the first book in the the, uh, first series. So imagine me holding up a green uh, book here and I'll send you the link in the weekly email or something like that. And I can't quite believe I did that not only once at nine o'clock today, but I've done it here again at uh, 10.30. But anyway, if you read along each week, I suspect you'll notice that a number of very helpful insights make their way into our sermons because once someone shows you something from the text, you can't miss it. <laughs> and it's key uh, to your understanding of the passage. So with that introduction, let's make our way into Luke. Uh, if you haven't been with us or it's your first time with us here today and perhaps you're not familiar uh, with Luke's Gospel, it's a great privilege to be sharing that with you for the first time and for me to point out to you that Luke, as he writes his Gospel, he says right up front that he's spoken to eyewitnesses, he's carefully investigated all things and he set about writing an orderly account of the things that he has seen and heard so that those who read it might know with certainty what they've been taught about Jesus. Uh, Luke was a doctor, he was well-educated of the Gospel writers, you can tell his good education because his Greek grammar is pretty flawless as he wrote down this orderly account. And in the opening section from chapter 1, really right up until today's reading, Luke has been carefully laying out this great salvation that Jesus has come to provide. And then at the closing part of the Gospel, from midway through chapter 19 through to the end, we learn how exactly this great salvation was accomplished as Jesus died on the cross and was raised back to life again. But in between those parts, we have for 10 chapters, this whole section focusing on a very relatively small part of Jesus' life, his journey to Jerusalem and what he taught along the way. It's a fairly short bit of Jesus' life to give such huge prominence to. And it would be hard to grasp, particularly for the young ones amongst us here today, just how much sort of space is kind of money. Like anyone who has access to a computer and the internet today can write almost to infinity on anything, whether anyone reads it, <laughs> uh, you've just kind of got an unlimited uh, amount of space to pour out your views on anything, which is one of the challenges in living in our modern world. But for Dr. Luke, scrolls of the day were a particular length, they were expensive, copying them was done by hand, which was very slow, 
So space given to something like this is a great indicator that this is very important for us uh, from the author who has put it together. Luke, by this stage, he has travelled with the Apostle Paul, he's seen the church explode across the Roman Empire, he's had access to the original sources, he knows all the stories, he's investigated them carefully. So kind of imagine him in his study decades after Jesus' death and resurrection with limited space, carefully selecting and grafting together his account of Jesus' life with a purpose, with God's church in mind as he composes. And we also trust, as we're told elsewhere in Scripture, that these words, or indeed all words in the Bible, are not just human words, but we can read them as God's words to us, as God's Holy Spirit guided the human authors like Luke. So when you put all that together, actually what we have in front of us, it's very important to dig into it. As I start to try and dig into the Bible, I always ask myself, what would we miss in the Christian life if we didn't have this section of the Bible, whether you're reading a chapter or a whole section of Luke's Gospel. And there's quite a lot of original stuff in Luke's Gospel that we don't get elsewhere, particularly in this middle section. What would the Christian life be like? What would we be missing if Luke simply hit the fast-forward button from chapter 951, where Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem? If Luke fast-forwarded then to 1928 as he finally gets there and looks up and starts ascending into the city. Narratively, it would make perfect sense. We wouldn't know that he'd missed anything. There's a quite big section here, and I guess I want to kind of put it out there as a thesis for the moment to be proven, but I think this whole section is here to show us what it means to be a follower of Jesus as a citizen of God's kingdom, a Christian, as we await Jesus' return which of course makes it just as important for us as it did to Luke's first readers a couple of decades on from Jesus' life, death and resurrection. So for the immediate context then, it would be great to have your Bibles open to page 1038. We'll start a little earlier in chapter 9. We've uh, just seen in chapter 9, as we left off last year, the disciples finally grasp who Jesus is in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 9, where Jesus first asked the disciples, who do the crowd say he is? But then in verse 20, he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, God's Messiah. They finally grasped that Jesus is God's anointed saviour and king, the one long promised and much anticipated in Israel. Jesus then tells them in the next few verses that he's to be rejected by the religious establishment of the day and that he must be killed and on the third day rise to life again. Then we read along and do it with me from verse 23 there in chapter 9. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Jesus is calling his disciples now who have just recognised and fully grasped who he is to follow him in a form of discipleship that is costly. 
Then we read the disciples get to see Jesus transfigured in all of his glory. As he's praying on the mountain, his appearance becomes like burning fire. Two great figures of the Old Testament kind of appear. I assume it's kind of a glowing Return of the Jedi kind of appearance thing. Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament are there discussing things with Jesus. And then, in just the few times that God actually does this during Jesus' life, speaks audibly from heaven and says to everyone listening, this is my son whom I may have chosen, listen to him. So as we come to today's passage, as Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem, his disciples are thoroughly convinced now that he is the Messiah, God's chosen king and saviour, the one long awaited. Which I think helps us start to understand what happens next in verses 52 and 53 of our reading that Esther just brought to us, which I think, as I've read it for the first time, I think this sounds a little odd to me. And he sent messages on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. It seems the boys were doing a little bit more than just organising the night's accommodation on Airbnb and popping a roast in the oven for dinner. They were doing something more, it seems. They were proclaiming who Jesus was and where he was going. I would argue God's appointed king and Messiah heading for Jerusalem. We don't know exactly, but if we understand the context, this this issue of kingship and rule was hotly contested in Samaritan territory. And the first readers of Luke would have known that. Generations before, they'd separated out from God's people, from the southern kingdom, and you can read about it in 2 Kings 1. They appointed their own king, Ahaziah, they set up their own place of worship, they were fiercely independent from that time on. And so God sends a prophet, Elijah, to give the king a warning about just how foolish they are. The king tries to have Elijah arrested and he repeatedly sends soldiers after him. But to show king the error of his ways and that Elijah spoke on God's behalf, he says, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven. And it does, not once but twice, kind of taking out the first two squads that came to arrest Elijah before the third group wised up and were smart enough to plead for mercy. Which, once you know that, sheds a whole lot of light of what is going on here with the disciples. They are convinced now that Jesus is king, perhaps a big bit slow to pick up the whole suffer and die thing, which we're told they only really get after Jesus has suffered and died. But as they are sent out ahead to prepare the way for Jesus, it appears as though they've been proclaiming him as the rightful king in Samaria, of all places, heading to Jerusalem, not to where they have centred their worship. It seems as though they also saw themselves on par now with the Old Testament prophets like Elijah, now speaking for God with his authority, preparing a way for Jesus to come and prepare his gospel, which is what John the Baptist has been doing up until this point, but he fades into the background and it looks like the baton has been passed to the disciples now to go ahead and prepare a way for Jesus. Hence, when it was made clear why Jesus wasn't welcome, they're thinking, we're in Samaritan territory. We've been here before as a people. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? They thought 
It was judgment time. Yet Jesus rebuked them. Clearly, this was not his vision for uh, kingship at this time. The disciples got the proclaim Jesus and the kingdom part right, but they seem to have misunderstood the nature of Jesus' kingship. Jesus was clear from the outset, and Luke included this back in chapter 4, that as Jesus commences his ministry, first walks into his home synagogue in Nazareth, he's given the opportunity to teach, opens the prophet of the scroll, Isaiah, and lays out and reads a reading they've been reading for hundreds of years at this point, about a ministry of proclaiming good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim a time of God's favour to people. And he says then stunningly, as he kind of leaves that pause in the sermon and all his eyes are fixed on him, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture that had been reading for hundreds of years was all pointing to Jesus. That was his mission, to come and proclaim a time of God's favour. Jesus is saying, he is the one, long promised, who can offer everyone peace with God. And this time hadn't changed I think fairly self-evidently from the New Testament, still hasn't changed for us as well, that we are to proclaim Jesus as King with a declaration that He has come and now offers a time where anyone can find peace with God through Jesus. I think this is strengthened by what happens in our next section where this idea of proclaiming the Kingdom of God appears central as we meet kind of three, we've heard from the existing disciples, we now meet three would-be disciples on the road. Jesus seems to be underlining his teaching, you know, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. I think Luke's kind of got the highlighter out, he's underlining and drawing our attention to this very important lesson. To the first who says to Jesus, you'll follow him wherever he goes, Jesus says, foxes have dens, and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I thought about it this a bit through the week, and having spent a lot of time in Proverbs last year, I think some of the more elusive sayings in the Bible are perhaps there so that we might ponder and reflect on them, and that the immediate import of them is not just, here's a simple truth, here's a simple answer. There's something in the pondering and in the reflection. Jesus is, of course, heading to Jerusalem now to suffer and be rejection. Makes sort of, it's obvious at the time, there is no point for those follow, following him to find rest. But to wonder why Luke thinks it's so important for us to read and what it might mean for us who choose to follow Jesus today, as I reflected on it, it actually drew me back uh, to my time on the road uh, backpacking for a few years when I was. 21, half a lifetime ago now, even a touch more. <laughs> I had a great time seeing Europe, America, Africa, but I discovered after a time there's a cost involved in being a solo traveller. Each day being on the road, you're thinking, where am I sleeping? What am I eating? Am I going to be safe tonight? And often, as the months kind of drew into years, I found myself longing for a nap in Dad's big armchair at home. Now, it's a comfortable chair, to be sure, but what made me long for it was the simple idea that I could be in a place that was safe and that I didn't need to worry and think all the time. Now, as a follower of Jesus, I find, personally, there's a similar tension to it. 
We are people like the disciples, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, who know that he is king. We know that he is coming to judge at some time in the future. And we know that now is a time for people to find peace with God through him. I find that there's a base level of concern and restlessness that you have for others that you know and love, your neighbours, friends, colleagues, that I long for them to know Jesus. But I also long, and because you kind of, if you love Jesus and you love people, you kind of can't exclude yourself from that tension. I find there's a cost for it. I long for true rest each day to be home with Jesus, actually when all is said and done. But for now, I find there's a cost to it. To the second man whom Jesus calls to follow him, who says, yes, but, and wants to go home and bury his father, Jesus says, and I don't think there's any way that we could overplay just how shocking this would have sounded. Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's the most kind of outrageous part of this whole story. And in a society with a much stronger sense of responsibility to parents than we have, that responsibility of a son to oversee his father's burial, this is kind of, this is mind-blowingly shocking from Jesus to say that. Now, Jesus has been clear in his teaching to this point, and the Old Testament is clear too, and Jesus affirmed that, that both uh, love and honouring our parents and the proper care of children and family are really important things in the Christian life. So I don't think Jesus is saying throw all that out. But in perhaps one of the most shocking ways possible at the time, Jesus is saying whatever season of life you find yourself at, there's this prior responsibility that you have to proclaim the kingdom of God, Jesus' rule. And to the third would-be disciple who wants to say goodbye to his family, Jesus amps it up again with the cost of discipleship and says, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, I've never tried to kind of take one of those mechanical ploughs along behind an ox or something like that in a field, but it looks like hard work to me. And I can imagine to do it well and to get those lovely straight lines ready for planting a crop, that you can't kind of have your eyes going all over the place and looking back. Perseverance, commitment and single-mindedness are needed, great endurance. And that's actually a regular teaching of Jesus in Luke's Gospel about what it means to follow him. So if our thesis is right that this whole section in Luke, as Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem until he gets there, is to illuminate for us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in our world, Jesus has got off to a pretty firecracker start, a pretty punchy opening about counting the cost of following Jesus, as I got you to think about before the Bible reading today. And it makes fairly clear that to follow Jesus is to be one who takes their place in God's plans as a community together, to be people who are proclaiming the kingdom of God, Jesus' rule. People who speak of his rule and reign in every season of life. And I find too, when I, some of the more kind of difficult bits when I'm trying to share Jesus with someone else is people evaluating it on the basis of, is there something good in here for me? Do I like it? Will I kind of jump in and investigate more? 
when really what I think this brings out to us is perhaps a bit of a, a blind spot to us in the way that we portray the gospel. It's really about proclaiming Jesus' rule and reign. Jesus is king. Whether people believe it or like it or want to follow it is in some degree beside the point. It's a fact. And what we're sharing is that people need to know that Jesus is the true king of this world. He is returning to judge. And now is a time where we get to proclaim a time of God's favour where anyone can come and find peace with God through Jesus. For us, knowing now that there's a cost in following Jesus, that our concern for others' salvation and God's glory, I think, for me at least, it provides a kind of an undercurrent of tension uh, in life that I long for some rest from. And to be a disciple is... Also, as Jesus points out, it's about endurance, it's about perseverance. It's not the great bang with which so many start out the Christian life that matters as much as those who hold unswerving, persevering to the end, who cross the finish line with Jesus as their Lord. This is a challenging call from Jesus. I would do you a great disservice as a preacher if I watered it down simply to make it more palatable. But what I will say as we ponder it is as we consider the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, it's vitally important that we do not lose sight of the one who calls us. This is coming from Jesus, who out of extraordinary love for you and me at great cost to himself, paid a price for us that we could never afford on our own. He paid the price for our sin, for the, the sins that we cause as we, sorry, the sins that we commit as we cause pain to each other for the things we do, the good things that we know we should do that we don't do, for how we treated our world, but most importantly, how we've treated the God, the Lord, the creator of this world in not honouring and serving him as we're called to. And because Jesus paid that cost, the price of sin, which is death, for all who acknowledge his kingship, we as Christians are people who have been set free from the penalty of sin, from death itself, free to live in relationship with God today and forevermore. This whole world battles on with a crushing reality of sin and death that spoils everything and ends in our death. Our whole world labours under and we're fighting a losing battle against it. But for the follower of Jesus who acknowledges his kingship, that weight, that crushing weight has been lifted from us and replaced with a yoke that is both easy and light, as Jesus says. See, it's a comparative thing. (laughs) To be a disciple of Jesus today, and as we saw last week in Ephesians 4, it's God who prepares good works for us to do, It's God who equips us to do them in his name as we seek to live for his glory and praise until we see Jesus face to face and enjoy him forever and experience that true deep rest that each of us long for. As we consider the cost today for us personally as a community, I also want to acknowledge we live in a wonderfully blessed time and place, to be people who live in this part of the world in this time of history. But we also live in a rapidly changing time 
where the cost of openly following Jesus in our country is on the rise. Some, again, some of our youth won't note the change that it was only a generation ago where some of the older people in our room were raised, where the church was kind of the pillar of society, where good people went, whether they really believed in Jesus or not. It was right there at the centre of our community life. Over the coming decades, it was slowly moved to a harmless player on the fringe for those who still find some enjoyment out of believing some antiquated things like that. But I reckon just particularly in the last few years in our country, we've moved yet again at a pretty alarming pace where to have a biblical worldview on all sorts of images, of all sorts of uh, things that happen in our world, we're considered increasingly dangerous, a threat to all that is good. To me, that's quite a dramatic shift in just the last few years. But I don't think we should be alarmed about this. I didn't think of this when I was writing, but the turn of phrase, be alert but not alarmed. Uh, I can't remember where that came from, but I remember it being somehow funny sometime in the past. But history shows us repeatedly that times of great gospel growth come as people watch on as Christians pay a significant cost for following Jesus. So I don't think now is the time for hand-wringing. I don't think now is the time for Christians to be blogging endlessly about all the ills of the world. I think it's time for us to ask ourselves, are we willing to pay the cost for following Jesus today? Will we be the people who pray and pay the cost of walking across the street or the office to invite someone to, you know, maybe our next men's and women's night to hear about Jesus, will we pay the cost of, you know, coming along and being trained to read the Bible one-on-one more effectively with others? Will our kids, and I mean communally, our kids here, those hundred or so kids that join us each Sunday, will they look at us as adults and see us pouring the best of our energy and time into our careers, our businesses, and our superannuation? Or will they see us counting the cost always, living with a priority of being part of a community set about proclaiming the kingdom of God, giving the best of our energy, giving the best of our entrepreneurial minds, giving the best of our heart, giving the best of our relational energy in service of Jesus? to share with people now is the time where Jesus extends an offer of peace with God that everyone needs. If you're just here checking out who Jesus is, I want to say you really owe it to yourself to think through the claims of Jesus' kingship carefully. Our next Looking Into Life with Jesus series is coming up middle of March, March 14. It'd be great to come along. There's a whole bunch of people who'll be training to read the Bible one-on-one if that's a, a better way for you to investigate who Jesus is. But for those of us who are already disciples of Jesus, I want to say foundationally, never losing sight of the cost Jesus paid for us is critical in us not losing our way as we assess the cost of following Jesus. But I also think one of the great encouragements God has given us is the encouragement of living in communities together where we see each other paying the cost regularly for following Jesus. It looks different for us. 
for some of us, it's uh, more of a financial thing. For some of us, it's, uh, we have more time to give, uh, to serve. For, for some people amongst us, um, actually it might mean actually saying no to a relationship that you desire out of a heart to follow Jesus, not to go into an area where God says this is not helpful for you. The cost might look different for each of us, but for people who are paying a very obvious cost, there's nothing more encouraging than looking out at a community of people who, in all sorts of different ways, are paying the cost of following Jesus together. But it also works in reverse. If you feel like you're really paying a cost of following Jesus, and you're part of a church community where there's a whole bunch of people who seem to have everything in the world and not be prepared to pay any costs, it's profoundly discouraging as well. Now, I want to say this in the appropriate context. I am regularly praising and thankful to God for our community here. I think it's sadly abnormal that we actually, I would say, have the majority of people here who do pay a cost. As I look through the role and market, there's so many people to give thanks to God for, for the way that they are counting the cost and serving Jesus. I think it's great to be a part of a church where that's the majority, not the minority. If you speak to most pastors, the 80-20 rule applies, 20% of people do the heavy lifting, counting the cost, 80% don't. I'm very thankful to God that that is not true for us. But I think, and please, I'll, <laughs> I'll try and look at no one in particular here in case you think I'm pointing this at you. Every church, I'll just look at the queen up the back, every church, <laughs> every church has people that you look around that are encouraging and some that are profoundly discouraging. So I want to ask you, and I get nervous at asking these questions, not because I think it's a bad question to ask or a lack of courage. I'm nervous as a pastor because usually the people uh, who you want to encourage with these questions uh, are so kind of committed to following Jesus, they're also humble, and they then take upon themselves a burden which you didn't intend as a preacher, then the people that you really wanted to consider it uh, kind of brush it off. So that's my nerves in asking this question. Also want to clarify, if you're here checking out who Jesus is, not for you, if you're coming back to church for the first time or just a new follower of Jesus, also a question, not for you. This is aimed at Christians who have been following Jesus for a while. I want you to ask, and this is a rhetorical question, you can just ponder it, and I, and I will pray in a moment that we might discern this right. It's a long intro to a question. <laughs> But you'll get the point of it, because it, it has a bit of heat behind it, and I think that's appropriate, because this passage is a challenging passage. To come away with a, a feel-good interpretation, gee, I'm just extending the intro now, aren't I? <laughs> okay, I'll just say it, and then I'll pray. Have a think and reflect. If you were to open the books on your life, if people were to see what you give to you know, support mission or the Bible college or gospel work in this world, if people were to see how you spend your time, what you prioritise how big your super is compared to how much you give, all the different things, how you serve, do you think people would find you an encouragement or a discouragement? Point of question, meant to be, I pray, I'll pray now that we might discern it rightly in our own lives. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much uh, for our Lord Jesus. Thank you, as Luke put his gospel together, that he's laid out 
so wonderfully uh, for us, this very great salvation that Jesus comes to provide and, uh, and to bring for us. We thank you as Luke's Gospel closes, we see with great insight and care exactly how that was accomplished on the cross as Jesus died to sin and rose to life again on the third day just as he predicted to show us that he's conquered death and uh, that he is king and for all those that want to be part of his kingdom and acknowledge his lordship, he provides us such a wonderful salvation, a great future promised rest and in the meantime he promises to be with us and to equip Uh, his body, your church in this world for good works and enable us uh, to do them so that we might live for the praise of his glory. As we consider uh, the start uh, to this new section of Luke's Gospel, Lord, please help us to discern aright what's really going on in our hearts about whether we're willing to pay the cost to follow Jesus. Please help us, Lord, to uh, for those of us who need encouragement on this, please encourage them and please use your people here to do that. For those of us who need uh, a little nudge on this in many ways, in, including myself, please please, you know, give us that appropriate nudge. And for those of us here who just need to wholeheartedly repent, might they wholeheartedly repent and be willing to pay the cost to follow you this day. Please, Lord, we uh, thank you for our community here where we look out week on week and take great encouragement as we see people uh, rock up to serve our kids or set up the drum kit or the sound or put chairs out or as uh, people are thinking and praying how they might share Jesus in the workplace or in the community, how people invest and partially care with one another, all the different ways that people pay a cost in following you out of a response for your grace to us. Please help us to be uh, deeply encouraged to do so and not to do so feeling like our arm has been twisted, uh, but actually to do it out of a response of love and thankfulness and joy and praise to you, knowing the cost that Jesus paid for us on the cross. And it's in his precious and very powerful name we pray.